Hi, I'm Rob. Today we're going to learn how to play Troika. Troika is a rules-light, old-school-style fantasy RPG set in an abstract, absurdist science fantasy setting. It's equal parts Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett. The PCs are set in a vast multiverse of planets and dimensions where anything can happen. Players travel from world to world, called spheres, through mysterious portals, golden-sailed ships that sail between the stars, through strange mazes of doorways, and any other way you can imagine, making friends and enemies and exploring the myriad spheres that Troika has to offer. The Troika system was written by Daniel Sell, published in around 2019, and is built on the bones of an old system called Fighting Fantasy. Fighting Fantasy was a series of choose-your-own-adventure books that used dice, and were published in the 1980s. They were written by a game designer named Steve Jackson, who is not the Steve Jackson from Steve Jackson Games, but a co-founder of Games Workshop and Warhammer. So this game kind of has like a real historical gaming lineage. Troika is intentionally written to be rules light, and relies on the GM's judgment to decide when rulings are ambiguous. This is a game that lends itself well to house rules. As with all tabletops, the GM has the final say on how to proceed when faced with a rules conundrum. When we play together, we're going to introduce a couple of house rules that make sense to me, and you may find house rules that make sense to you. All you actually need to play are two six-sided dice. That's pretty easy to find. You can grab some from your collection or steal some from a board game or whatever. And uh, most dice rolls are going to be 1d6 or 2d6, but the game will occasionally call for a roll of d3, which is just a d6 roll halved and rounded up, or a roll of d66, which is a 2d6 roll where the first die rolled represents the 10 slot and the second die rolled represents the 1 slot producing a range of numbers between 11 and 66, and is only really important for a couple of tables like rolling random spells and backgrounds of character creation or rolling for spell fumbles. You're also going to need two beads or cards or tokens for tracking your character's initiative in combat. There are initiative trackers available online if you prefer that. When rolling dice, you're typically rolling under or rolling versus. Rolling under is used primarily during unopposed checks, such as lifting a heavy object, climbing a wall, or casting a spell. To roll under, you're rolling 2d6 and hoping to score under a number, typically your total skill relevant to the check. For example, Vilamina, the well-traveled, is an exotic warrior. She needs to make an astrology test to determine some information about the destination of an interdimensional portal. Her base skill is 5, her advanced skill in astrology is 1, so she needs to roll a 6 or less on a 2d6 to pass the check. When rolling versus, you are rolling against another opponent. You roll 2d6 and add your relevant skill and compare it against the opponent's roll. This is primarily used for combat, but is used anytime the target is aware of you and actively resisting. Character creation is actually very simple. The character sheet is available on page 110 of the rulebook. You can roll 1d3 plus 3 to determine your skill, 2d6 plus 12 to determine your stamina, and 1d6 plus 6 to determine your luck. These numbers are static and cannot be changed for the life of the character. Given the importance of skill to a character, some players use a house rule where all characters have a set 5 for their skill. Let's talk more in depth about those primary stats. Skill represents your raw ability to perform challenging tasks. Skill is modified by advanced skills, which give you a bonus to performing a specific action that you're trained in. Your total skill is your base skill plus your advanced skill. Troika's skill system is open to improvisation and interpretation, so it's up to you to explain to the DM how your advanced skills can be realistically applied to the specific challenge. Casting spells is a special type of skill test that we'll discuss later. Stamina represents the amount of damage that you can suffer before going unconscious and dying. This is a pretty lethal system. When you're reduced to zero stamina, you're dying. During a combat, you will die if you are not healed before the end of the current round. Outside of a combat, your allies will have one opportunity to heal you, or you will otherwise die immediately. 
If you are reduced to lower than zero stamina, you die outright and you proceed immediately to new character generation, which is super fast and easy. Resting for eight hours restores 2d6 stamina. Consuming a provision can restore 1d6 stamina up to three times a day. You cannot be healed above your maximum stamina. Luck is a representation of your character's fortune and intuition is used in situations where your skill or your choices may not be a clear factor. When you test your luck, you're rolling 2d6 to roll under your luck score. Every time you test your luck, your luck drops by one regardless of if you pass or fail. For every eight hours you rest, you regain 2d6 luck up to your maximum. Game masters may optionally allow PCs to test their luck to survive death and dismemberment, causing them to become incapacitated, wounded, or otherwise saved from their grisly fate. Note that the consequences of testing your luck and failing may not be immediately revealed to you. For example, Philomena is the target of a diminish spell by a transgressive tower wizard. She tests her luck of 8, rolling a 6 on 2d6, meaning she resists the effects of the spell. Her luck drops by 1 to 7 for the day. All characters begin play with 2d6 silver pence, a knife, a lantern, and flask of oil, a rucksack, and 6 provisions. Your background will award you some additional starting items. Characters in general have 12 inventory slots that are purposefully ordered 1 through 12. You may arrange them however you like, but bear in mind that things placed in lower inventory slots will be easier to retrieve in a hurry. Put things like armor at the bottom of your inventory. Large items that require two hands to hold use two inventory slots. Armor uses up a number of inventory slots equal to twice the armor value provided. So armor with an armor value of two would use up four slots. Small items that stack easily use one inventory slot per stack. If you are carrying more than 12 slots worth of items, you are overburdened and suffer a minus four to your rolls until you lighten up. If you're carrying more than 18 slots worth of items, you can barely move and are considered unawares. If you have to drop a lot of things in a hurry, you can put down 1d6 things carefully or drop 2d6 things haphazardly on your turn. The book doesn't list pence values for much of anything and doesn't really discuss money at all. Uh, It'll be up to your GM to determine the costs of things, and it's possible that each sphere has its own values and currency. So money is as important or unimportant as your table decides. Let's talk about backgrounds. The base rulebook for Troika has 36 backgrounds to start from, and the supplemental rulebooks introduce many more. Uh, There's even rules for creating your own backgrounds if you prefer. Roll a D66 to choose your background at random. Your background provides you with some context for your character, some additional starting items, and some advanced skills. Those skills go on the front page of the sheet, and their rank is added to your base skill. Let's talk about combat. Time is tracked in turns and rounds. A turn refers to a specific actor's action during a combat, and a round is the time it takes between drawing of the end-in-round tokens in the initiative and represents the time passed by all acting participants in a combat. To start, all participating characters place tokens into a bag. PCs get two tokens each and should be unique to the player, like a bead of a certain color or a poker chip with your name on it or something. Enemies get a number of initiative tokens equal to their combined initiative, and then henchmen receive one initiative token each. Finally, an end-of-turn token is added to the bag. As combat progresses, tokens are removed from the bag, and it's that person's turn to do something. Enemies share their initiative collectively, so on an enemy turn, any enemy can go, even if they've already gone this round. This can be easily abusable, so the DM is advised to make combat decisions that make sense. In the event that there are simply too many enemies for the combat to flow naturally, the DM can choose to include a maximum number of tokens. So like if there were like 50 goblins, you'd add 20 initiative tokens to the bag for the goblins. When the end of turn token is drawn, the round ends, all the tokens go back in the bag, minus the tokens for any vanquished characters. Combat in Troika is chaotic. Not everybody gets a turn. Some people get to go twice. Initiative trackers for Troika are available on the internet. 
poker chips, colored beads, colored dice. If you have a lot laying around, playing cards, whatever you have, all work for tracking initiative. Henchmen are hired help by the PCs that can assist in combat. Henchmen are NPCs that are controlled by the GM. On a henchman's turn, the GM decides what the henchman does. Henchmen will do their best to follow the directions of the PCs, but ultimately have their own interests in mind. Henchmen have stats similar to monsters. Henchmen can be found and recruited in-game by normal play, just like you would in any other game, either by hiring them, making friends, rescuing them, or whatever. Let's talk about what you can do in combat. You can delay. If you do, you put your initiative token back into the bag. You can move. You can move up to four meters, which is like two squares if you're playing on a square grid, and then you can do something else. Otherwise, you'll need to spend your whole turn moving. To hit somebody in melee, you roll your associated combat skill, which is 2d6 plus your base skill plus your advanced skill versus your target, who will be doing the same. The winner of the roll deals damage to the loser. In the event of a tie, you clash and nobody deals damage. So for example, Philomena finds herself in combat with a confused orc, which pops into existence as the result of her fumbling a spell. She draws her weird weapon and makes her attack, rolling 2d6 with a result of 7 and adding her base skill of 5 plus her advanced skill in fighting with her weird weapon of three for a total of 15 against the orc's opposing combat roll. The orc rolls a four, adding it to his skill of seven for a total of 11. Velamina wins the contest and deals damage with her weird weapon to the orc. To shoot someone, you roll your attack versus the target's attempt to avoid getting hit with skills like dodge or shield. When you fire in a melee, you roll against the target's evasion attempt, but the weapon hits anyone chosen at random involved in the melee. So shooting into melee is not a super great idea unless it's a lot of enemies and not a lot of allies. Additionally, you may choose to aim. To do so, you declare the action on your initiative, and you hold your initiative token until the next one is drawn, and on your initiative, you roll twice and pick the better roll. You can continue to aim through the end of a combat round. Cover grants you a scaling bonus of plus one to plus six, not to be hit by a ranged attack based on the quality of the cover between you and the attacker. So, like, if you're standing behind a bush, that's a plus one to your evasion attempt. If you're standing on, like, a giant wall, that's, like, a plus six to your evasion attempt. You can cast a spell. To cast a spell, you spend an amount of stamina as listed in the book. You test your skill, and then the effect happens. Rolling a 2 on 2d6 is always a success, while rolling a 12 is always a failure, and is a spellcasting fumble. Roll a d66 and consult the table at the end of the book, which explains the results of your spellcasting mishap. Some spells call for an opposed roll rather than a skill test, in which case you roll versus the target, but a 12 on the dice is still a failure and a fumble. The rules are ambiguous about whether a spell can be cast untrained, and that's ultimately up to your GM. When you hit, you deal damage. Damage is calculated on the table at the beginning of the book. When using a weapon that doesn't match a weapon listed on the chart, either use the closest equivalent or feel free to make your own damage matrix for truly exotic weapons. First, you make your damage roll, which is 1d6, and you compare your roll to the number on the chart. Items and combat conditions tend to impact your damage roll rather than apply a modifier to your damage directly. In combat, you may test your luck to add two to your damage roll. Philomena's weird weapon is most like a longsword. She rolls a three on her damage roll, dealing eight damage to the orc, reducing him to exactly zero stamina, causing him to fall unconscious and dying. If you roll two sixes on a 2d6 attack roll, the attack is considered a mighty blow. You win the exchange automatically and do double damage. In the result that both combatants score a mighty blow, both weapons shatter. Combatants using natural weapons like claws or teeth will take 1d6 damage instead. If you roll two ones on a 2d6 attack, then the roll is a fumble. You automatically lose the exchange and your opponent's gets one to their damage roll. If both parties fumble, they both take damage with one added to their damage roll. When using multiple weapons, you may choose which of your held weapons deals damage after you roll your damage roll, regardless of the skill check you use to make the attack. 
For example, if you were skilled in knife fighting and wielding a knife and a longsword, you could make a knife fighting test to strike the target in combat, but use your longsword to roll for damage. If you attempt to hit someone who's unawares, you roll under rather than versus. They do not get to attack you back, and you increase your damage roll by two. When you're on the floor, you suffer a minus two penalty to all physical rolls against anyone standing, including damage rolls, and must spend a full turn to stand up. Armor and shields reduce your opponent's damage roll to a minimum of one. Light armor reduces the roll by one, modest armor reduces the roll by two, and heavy armor reduces the roll by three. Armor uses up a number of inventory slots equal to twice this bonus, so heavy armor uses six inventory slots. Shields reduce your opponent's damage roll by one. You can retrieve an item. To quickly draw an item that isn't currently in your hands, you roll 2d6 and compare that to the number the item ranks on your inventory. If you roll equal to or higher than the item's position, you successfully draw the item and can use it that turn. Otherwise, you spend your entire action getting it. Rolling a 2 is always a failure to retrieve an item quickly. You can use the item. If an item is in your hands, you can use it. The book contains a list of descriptions of special items, but if an item is otherwise unlisted, assume it provides a plus one bonus to a skill test associated with that item. For instance, a rope would offer a plus one bonus to a climb test. Item bonuses only apply if you're trained in the relevant class skill, so you would only get the plus one bonus from a rope if you have any skills in climbing. This applies to weapon tests and their relevant weapon skills. So if you have a longsword and you have training in longsword and you're fighting with the longsword, you get a plus one to your longsword test because of it. You can grapple. To grapple, you roll versus an opponent's wrestling skill. If you win, you can either knock them down or you can deal unarmed damage to them, which knocks you both down. So you can kind of like tackle them. On a mighty blow, you render the target unconscious for 1d6 rounds. If you fail to grapple, you were automatically hit normally by the opponent. And if you fumble, you were automatically dealt a mighty blow. When falling, you suffer 1d6 damage for every 2 meters you fell when you land. Degenerative effects, such as drowning, on fire, poison, freezing to death, are ongoing effects that trigger at the end of each round and typically deal 1d6 damage for each round sustained. Some effects, like drowning, will increase for each consecutive fail test against the effect or failure to take action to resolve the issue such as getting out of the water, stop, drop, and rolling, drinking an antidote, leaving the area, whatever. Finally, let's talk about advancement, leveling up. When you successfully use an advanced skill, put a check mark next to it. At the end of the day, you may attempt to advance up to three skills that you've put a check mark next to that day. Roll a flat 2d6 against your current skill total. If you roll above your total, you increase the skill by one. Note that there's no way to increase your maximum skill, luck, or stamina, just your advanced skills. Additionally, you may find training from NPCs or other players in advanced skills that you have or new skills you want to learn. They will need to have a higher skill total than you. After a week of training, you can roll to learn or advance a skill. This is particularly useful for learning new spells or for training spells in general, because every time you cast a spell, there's a chance of immediate painful death. With the way the character advancement works, I think there's some merit in the possibility of rolling a four for your base skill. Characters with a skill of four will have a much easier time advancing skills every day as their total will be lower and will permit for learning many more advanced skills over the course of a character's career and will result in more of a jack-of-all-trades character, whereas characters with a skill of six will have a harder time advancing their skills and will likely result in a more focused character. It's really up to you if you want to set a house rule related to skill. I know some people have a house rule where everybody starts with a base skill of five. But without assuming anything about the intent of the design, while I think a skill of four can make a character challenging to play at the offset, I think it all balances out in the long run and probably quickly. If you're interested in playing Troika, it's got a huge following on the internet. 
The Troika subreddit has over a thousand followers. You can find plenty of supplemental adventures and character options posted by players there. There's a ton of stuff available on DriveThruRPG. There are some fan sites that offer stuff like character generators and initiative trackers. There are zines posting new backgrounds and spells and settings and adventures. There is a ton out there. I was able to get some answers to questions on the official Discord super quickly. Everybody was super friendly and helpful. Anybody can publish free or commercial material based on or compatible with Troika without permission from the publisher. So there's just a ton of stuff that you can find and use to enhance and customize your game. Given the openness of the system, the Troika system works well with published system agnostic adventures, procedurally generated dungeons, homebrew campaigns, and very likely adapts adventures from other systems very easily. The ability to roll up a character very quickly, the low gear requirement, and the openness of the system's framework make the game super flexible, give it a really low barrier of entry, make it very easy for new players to start playing very quickly. I hope you guys have a great time playing Troika. Thanks for listening. 